0: What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You
1: have a prepaid call from
0: William A.
1: Napier, an inmate at the California State Prison San Quentin. This call and your
0: telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different, complete guy, which is the guy who walked the walkways of San death row without a gang or a group of people around. He was just me.
1: Soon after you went into to be on death row
0: <laughs>
1: Welcome back to Death Row Diaries. I am Matt Ralston. And I'm William Medeiro. And today we're going to be discussing the case of Aaron Hernandez, who I'm sure everyone has heard of. This received a lot of media coverage a few years ago. He killed a few people. Turned out he killed a few more. Um, But There's a lot more to the story than that, and we can look into how he became this kind of impulsive homicidal maniac. So we'll get right to it. Before then, we have a question from our new Patreon subscriber, Eric. We appreciate you, Eric, very much. If anyone wants to contribute and support the show, go to patreon.com slash death diaries, and there you will get exclusive content that you cannot get for free on any of the other platforms and we just like to do this stuff for our supporters to give you a little something extra to say thank you for helping us out also feel free to visit our instagram and facebook pages at death row diaries if you want to send a question in go ahead and we're going to answer eric's question now so i'll just read what he wrote uh what he wrote For me to ask you. He says, you seem very well versed on current events, politics, as well as being an author and artist. You sound very convicted, no pun intended, in your beliefs and comfortable in your own skin. But since you've made a conscious decision to make an impact with your life through experiences and has that created a sense of freedom despite being in prison, is this a form of freedom that other convicts can't experience. I guess he's asking kind of how free do you feel? Um, Do you count down the days? It's a little bit of a a philosophical question.
0: Yeah, no, that's actually a very good question. Thank you, Eric. Um, Yeah, uh, I don't know if it helps me feel any more free, but it does give meaning to this experience. I mean, there is value of what has happened to me and what I've experienced. You know, that's one thing that I realized a few years back and it was very traumatic when it happened. I was actually face down on the floor of the yard and bullets are flying all around me while two guys are actually stabbing each other to death. And at that moment, it just this is about maybe a month before I actually began writing Escape Artist. And I just realized at that moment, it's kind of like, A moment of activity, you know, that that this situation has value, that the experiences in here can help society in one way or the other, whether it be to not walk down a certain path or to give them insight into what normal people don't see to happen behind these brutal walls. So I don't know if if freedom is something—it's a sense of accomplishment. with the show, with my art, books, everything I do, for me, it's, a set of a, it's just an accomplishment. And I've said this before, one of the worst things in the world is to actually realize your potential after you get put in prison. It's a horrible feeling to know that you have all this potential and all of these, uh, I guess you have all of these different avenues that you could've used prior to being in the situation. And now you can't. So for me, it's become a matter of giving meaning to my life. And I know that sounds kind of cliche but when guys get in prison, they get so involved in their environment that they don't care about the outside world. And that's the easy way out. It's the way where you have to deal with, look what I'm missing. So how I deal with it is I, I accomplish different goals and I continue to go. So at some point my life has meaning anything can touch someone. And there's a person out there, a kid or an adult, that they're about to commit a crime, they're about to do something. Maybe my voice will be that voice of reason, telling them, look, this is what you're going to get. So that's uh, basically the reason I do it. I don't I don't know if freedom is something that I, I would I would say, because as you guys can hear in the background, you hear the microphones. There's still steel bars in front of my cell. I'm calling from a state-approved phone, and you hear that voice telling you every 30 to 40 seconds, you yeah, you're just called, You have 60 seconds remaining. Uh, speak of the devil, right? So there is the answer to your question, and I appreciate it very much.
1: Thank you. All right, we'll be back and get into the story of Aaron Hernandez. All right, so this Hernandez guy is kind of complicated, and I feel like there's a few things we can kind of focus on first. Um, His repressed or at least secret homosexuality, the fact that he became a hardcore drug addict, maybe the fact that he was indulged and given this certain status to a high degree, but it struck me from reading your book. I mean, don't take this the wrong way. I understand they're different people, but you had a kind of domineering Latin American father, right? Yeah, that's correct.
0: Um, I'm Colombian, and Aaron Hernandez is Puerto Rican, but Latino is the key here, and I I want the subscribers and the listeners to kind of get a feel for what it feels like to have a father like this. And this guy, you know, his father's name is Dennis um, Hernandez. He's not what you would typically find in a Hispanic family, which is a guy who wants his his son, or he wants to live through his son vicariously. This is a different animal. Like my father, Dennis Hernandez is a very accomplished athlete. My father being a martial artist, where Dennis was a college football player for unintended purposes. He was a stud. This guy was a big guy, very fast. He played football. He was a uh, track star. And he taught his children exactly what he knew, which is that machismo Latin American viewpoint of everything. The man is the king of the house. And actually, they used to call him the king in his neighborhood meeting his father. Um, and there are these moments of violence in his father, where his children are watching what he's doing. One incident, he punched a a football coach that was the his kids' football coach because he didn't agree with the strategy that they had in the game. There's also a lot of of violence between Dennis Hernandez and uh, Aaron's mother. They they were married, but they had a lot of uh, Spats and arguments, and it comes down to this whole domineering Latino that rules his family with an iron fist. Now, this doesn't mean or say that he doesn't love his children, because obviously his boys, both DJ and Aaron, love their father. It's, it's a very thin line that you cross over as a son to a man like this. And I wrote that in a dedication in my book. You know, I say, you know, I've loved you, I've sometimes hated you. I worshipped your strength, and I feared it. I say this in my book because it's, it's that line that you draw between loving your father and hating him sometimes because, uh, and at the same time, worshipping him. It's, it's really hard uh, for a child to, to really deal with that. But ultimately, Dennis Hernandez was Aaron and DJ's hero.
1: They worship him. Yeah. Well, when you tell a story, I mean, anyone that's throwing punches at youth sports games, like on one level, yeah, he's a passionate guy, but he's also obviously a jerk to some degree. Yeah, oh yeah, you know,
0: absolutely. But I'm sure that he thought his mind is, I'm taking over this situation, I'm doing the best thing for my boys. And we can argue this point, right? Look at uh, Serena Williams and her sister the best tennis players, you know, women tennis players to play of all time. Her father was very domineering. Same thing with Aaron Hernandez. He became, arguably, one of the best tight ends in NFL history.
1: You and know, I, last long. it's interesting you mentioned Venus and Serena, and, you know, like, don't come at me for being sexist or racist. It's not what I mean. But I've always suspected that their dad was giving them steroids, especially uh, Serena.
0: You know, I, I I can't comment. I don't know that for a fact. But you, yes, you can see that. And again, I have experience with that because my father, when I was thirteen years old, began giving me what he considered uh, supplements and vitamins. Little did I know, he was giving me Dianabol, which is anabolic steroid. So I went from age thirteen, measuring five one and one hundred and five pounds, to when I'm fourteen. I'm six foot 170 pounds of a freshman in high school. So there's a huge, yes, it's possible. I do that for a fact. Don't know if it's true. But you can see those things, or at least you can speculate, that
1: thats having to Aaron as well. And didn't you have a theory? Like For those who don't know, he always was a drug addict. And, you know, people act like pot's not a real drug or whatever. Well, it is. I mean, I've seen people abuse pot to a degree that, you would almost think is fictional um you know and and yeah i'm sure you can smoke pot and be a normal Let's person call. and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded you know it's like drinking two beers versus 40 you know the latter is a real problem um and you know you would see in video i mean he's just smoking like blunts like chain smoking blunts like it's insane i think it drove him insane but you had a theory about um why he was Abusing the substance, right? Absolutely. Um, and my theory, it's, it's well based
0: on experience, is that he was self-medicating. Uh, we learn later in his career that he has severe CTE, so bad that when they opened his brain up and, and, uh, after his, uh, he passed away, or actually after he killed himself, uh, his brain was compared to that of a 70-year-old. Now, this is at age... 27 when he kills himself, but he is involved in a very violent sport very early on in his life, and he begins to smoke weed, as you mentioned, at a very high level. For me, that's self-medication. And again, I know this because I was doing the same thing. Because of the steroids that my father was giving me, I was experiencing uh, rage, and I was experiencing also migraines, I mean acute migraines were nausea. I couldn't look at light, I had to be in the dark. Um, you couldn't talk to me because I'd become very explosive. But I learned at the age of 15 and half, 16, that if I smoked weed, it immediately suppressed the pain and uh, the traumatic uh, migraines that I was having. I believe that Aaron Hernandez was doing the same thing. He was self-medicating because Already at such an early age, he was suffering from symptoms of CT. Now, this doesn't happen to everybody. We've seen guys that play in the NFL for 15, 20 years, and they live long, productive lives without this problem. But as we've mentioned in the show before, different people respond to different things differently depending on their perspective, brain injury, and how they're wired. Obviously, Aaron Hernandez Because this didn't happen to his father, but to his brother, and he grew up in the same house. As I've spoken before, we have a cop, a DA, and a serial killer that grew up in the same house. How did the serial killer become him, and the other guy's not? Well, it's the same thing with Eric. He was wired differently. There was something already going on in his life, and when he received these traumatic blows to the head, his brain responded differently. So what he was doing was
1: self-medicating. Yeah, I mean, we don't know that much about CTE. It could have been just a few hits. You know, once you get those first few concussions, um, it becomes exponentially worse every time you get hit. Also, he's playing Pop Warner, you know, trying to be the the star of Pop Warner, which maybe shouldn't exist anymore, I would guess. But um, anyway, who knows? Obviously, he sustained a lot of hits. And then as we progress in the story, maybe moving to Gainesville, not the best environment for him?
0: Well, yeah, but we have to look at his high school career, which I think is significant
1: here. Oh, okay. Um, hey,
0: look, this guy was no ordinary guy. His brother had the same genes. His brother came before him. He's an older one. DJ. As a freshman, I mean, let's, let's, let's look at this. At 14 years of age, his brother is already playing at Connecticut, University of Connecticut, the Yukon, where his father played. His household was at Yukon and as a freshman, the university gets Eric Hernandez to commit to that school. I mean, that is, this is to show you the kind of football player this kid was. He was a phenom. He was a stud, track star. He played basketball. He played football, and he was far above head and shoulders above everyone else he averaged get this 180 yards a
1: game receiving wow 6'1 240 pounds he was a beast yeah he's unstoppable and and i mean sorry go ahead no he was you're right he was unstoppable because i mean if you're if you're more of a fan of you know, murder shows than football, he was an all-pro, you know, he was one of the best players in the league for a few years in the whole NFL. Yes. And and, and that begins to show that
0: kind of player he he would become. And, of course, people are going to, oh, yes, how could he get that good? He was the first guy at practice. He was the last guy at league. He worked extremely hard to become a he game. That never changed. It was his responses to trauma which really tell a different story. So, so he plays football first couple of years. At age 16, the biggest thing that could have happened to him in a bad way happens. And again, here we are talking from experience. When you have a domineering father that dominates every part of your life, you look up to him, he's your support system, he's your structure, he's everything, and suddenly he disappears, now you have basically a loaded gun. Because that kid, although very good at what he was doing before because of the structure, continues on that path, but now he's thinking on his own. He doesn't have someone putting blinders on him, so he's only going straight. Now he can see to the side. He can see the entire field, meaning in life. And now he's going towards those things, and he's looking for father figures. He's never going to admit this, but any psychologist or psychiatrist will tell you, look. He lost his father. His father died in the most routine way. He had a hernia. He went in for a simple, normal operation. And he dies. Suddenly. No, It's like, what the hell? And right then and there, Aaron loses his structure because his mother could never control him. Remember, when you grow up in a household, when the man is the domineering guy, and again, please, don't take this the wrong way. He was... Lecturing. He was pushing, he was schooling his son to believe in the man being the breadwinner, the man being in charge. So when his mother tries to tell him, you can't do this, he's not listening to her. He's listening to his father's voice. So his dad dies, and Aaron, right then, huge switch. Everybody that knew him six. He, he immediately didn't want to go to Yukon anymore. And bad part here is his mother then, get this, his mother decides then to come out that she's been having an affair with one of Aaron's cousin's husband, and she moves this guy into the house. So, of course, Aaron is thinking, what the hell, my father's just been buried, and you've brought another man in the house that you were having an affair with when my father was alive. Right there, I believe, is when you start seeing him hanging around with different people, gang members. He's looking for a father figure, and all he can find is other men that are also violent, like his father, and he finds them in the wrong place. So this is going on through high school, and there are incidents that are showing people this guy's not right, something's wrong with him. He's sucker-punching people. He's extremely violent with people outside his friendship because everybody that knows him says he's a great guy. He's he's a uh, great student. He's a happy guy. He defends his friends. He loves his friends. He never bullies his friends. But outside that circle, that's not the guy that he is.
1: Yeah, terrible call, terrible actions on his mom's part. You know, she should... Deserve some minimal This call and
0: your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. A you we'll have sixty seconds remaining. Oh shoot.
1: She <laughs> should Yeah, let's let's start. Uh, gentlemen, that is the the, the the word of Big Brother in the background. So yeah, I'm not too free here, buddy. Let me call back. Hey man. Yeah, so at this point. He starts kind of pretending he's a gangster. He gets some jewelry. He starts getting tattoos. But he's not. He's kind of a nerdy kid. And he didn't have a... Well, he didn't have a gangster upbringing. It definitely wasn't perfect. But that's just not who he is. But, you know, you see this a lot. I mean, you don't have to have CTE to be a teenager and start pretending you're someone you're not. It happens all the time. And you can see... You know, he's searching for an identity. I'm sure that's directly related to his father dying. I've noticed that people that get real into believing they're actually gangsters when they're not, I guess you can call it gullible, but do you think he was a particularly intelligent dude? I think that he was, a, I, I, he was an average
0: intelligent guy. He was a superior athlete in the physical specimen. But look, we're talking about a guy who's 16 years old, his brain's not developed, he's easily influenced like all people, it doesn't matter how uh, intelligent a teenager is, he's very easily manipulated, he's very easily swayed to doing things he probably normally wouldn't do. And remember, he's looking for an identity, he's looking for his father, a father figure, and all he's seen is guys who are thugs, guys who... And remember, he, does, he he grew up in Connecticut, ladies and gentlemen. This guy didn't grow up in Los Angeles where you had all these gang members, but he's seeking these type of people out because of the drug use. He's using a lot of weed, he has to buy it, he starts talking to people who are involved. Then of course you find thugs and criminals. And but look, it doesn't really change who he is. He's kinda of, yeah, he's kind of a nerdy guy. But look look what happens when he goes to when he starts going to college. First of all, he is, as a senior in high school, the Gatorade Player of the Year. That is huge. That means he's the best. And he is uh, supposed to go to Connecticut, where he's basically signed a letter of commitment as a freshman, which made his father very happy. But suddenly he changes his mind. He decides to go to Florida. And that possibly could be the worst move for him because he's thrown into a Football program known as The Program. He had Urban Meyer as the coach, and this guy only believes in one thing winning. So, he goes to the school, and he meets guys like the Ponce the Brothers, who played in the NFL at Miami, and the Pittsburgh Steelers. All, they're going to be Hall of Famers, but they're tattoo wearing guys. You know, they're, they look Hispanic, they kind of walk that walk, and they're an influence on him. But already Aaron Hernandez is finding out who he is. And one of the things that have come up numerous times, Matt, and you and I have discussed this, is that there's a very good chance that he might be in the closet about his sexuality. Nothing wrong with that, but because he grew up in that type of household where and again, speak from experience, I'm not saying this is right. All I'm saying is this is the mentality that guys have. And I know because I grew up with a father that thought the same thing. So Aaron is not coming out. He has no support system for his sexuality. The LGBTQ community is probably not something he's looking to look into. And he's in a program where that stuff is looked upon basically how you were As a child, his father probably would have disowned him had he come out. So he's suppressing his sexuality. He's suppressing who he really is. He's having to act like somebody else. But to act like a a certain person, which you're probably not, you you go far above who you normally would act to try and be convincing. He's talking, he always uses uh, slurs about people who are gay. He uses all these things. Now, a lot of guys in the football world do this, and we all know that in the NFL a number of men have come out later because they're afraid to come out during their tenure as NFL players because the NFL is not that supportive when it comes to it. a lot of jocks, a lot of guys that probably will say, yeah, I don't want to shower in the same way, shower with this guy. And that has been the case in the NFL. It's, it's very well documented. So he goes to Florida, and look, it doesn't affect him, Matt. He's still smoking a lot of weed. He's running around with a gun. Uh, he sets national records for receiving. He is the top tight end recruit in 2007. And he walked right of that program
1: like he was made for it. Yeah. So it just occurred to me, Central Florida, if you're struggling with your sexuality, probably not the most supportive environment in general. In fact, perhaps one of the worst uh, but he also went from this, within the span of only a couple years, from this hyper-structured environment to the University of Florida where he's not going to class, right? I mean, he has no structure. Yeah, let me, yeah. I mean, look at the
0: guys that are there with him. On one hand, you have Tim Tebow. I mean, he, he's the quarterback to school. And he's this, you know, Christian guy. He's pushing this stuff. Whoa. So yeah, I mean, not the most supportive system. He's, you know, the, Tim Tebow is his quarterback. Great guy. Every father would be happy to have a son like that. He's a diehard Christian. He's not the kind of guy you want to come out to because of his, his religious beliefs. And Florida itself, conservative. It's a red state. Now, if he was at UCLA or USC or you know Berkeley, I can see where that would work. But not in
1: Central Florida. Uh-oh. And you got Irma Ernie Myers, the coach, too. UCLA. He could have been a fun boy in a convertible, just cruising Malibu and and uh, picking up dudes. Would have been great for him. <laughs> I, I
0: really don't think he would have come out anyways because of his father's upbringing and, and being in that household. But yeah, it, it's just a very uh, oppressive stud player. Christian Eric can't go to his quarterback and say, "Hey." This is what I'm feeling. He can't go to Aaron Meyer, Meyer. So even if you asked Aaron Meyer, he would have told you, yeah. Oh, yeah, Urban, No, I'm, I'm, I'm open to all of this. Yes, I'm a you know, very conservative guy. He's worried about his football players. He probably would have pushed Aaron out. And Aaron knows this. Besides that, the ridicule that he would receive from other players in the team would be huge. And we know this. This isn't me just assuming... We know this and we know how the sports world is because towards the end of his life, what happens? You have very irresponsibly news media reporters from the sports world actually joking around about his possible uh, homosexual uh, lifestyle or his sexuality. Very irresponsible. But it happens and it shows the kind of attitude when it comes to football even from sportscasters so yeah not a good environment for him he wasn't going to come out but he was been oppressed inside of him and he was acting out because
1: of it yeah and now he's this football star and he has from my understanding i mean he hangs out with some of the guys on the team but he kind of seeks out this crew of sycophant losers and this is going to be something that persists the rest of his life right Correct, and he's doing that
0: because, not because these other people are gay or he's indulging a gay activity. That's not what this is about. He is looking for drugs. He's trying to score drugs in Connecticut, and that's where these kids are from. These he's men, really, and he's carrying guns already. He is It's, it's, it's a side effect of the C P E. He's very young. He's only, he's, at this point, he's only barely uh, years old, but already you can see the CTE. We, we do so in hindsight. Now we're looking saying, God, look, there it is. You can see the, the, the responses that are different than most kids, and it's because of CT, the blows he receiving. In high school, he was actually knocked out of a game where they put him in an ambulance and took away. He was completely knocked out because he got hit in the head. and It happened several times. So, yeah, this kid is already at college stirring in the wrong direction, and we have a, a, an incident where he goes into a restaurant. He's underage, under the age of 21, and he's ordering drinks. And I don't know what he's thinking because they usually the football players at that level. They give them whatever they want. But when the owner comes up to him and says, I'd like to have, here's the, the bill for the drinks. Eric Hernandez response by punching his guy, sucker punching him in the side of his head, rupturing his eardrum. That's his response when a person said, You have sixty seconds remaining. Here's your phone fo- uh your uh your your bill for the drinks, Mr. Hernandez. That's his response.
1: So he's now becoming super entitled if he wasn't already it's getting worse that
0: and his responses are always aggressive. This is a man who's already getting paranoid, he's thinking that people are looking at him. He's carrying guns, he's punching people, he's responding to certain situations immediately with violence. That is a huge red flag for C T D
1: Yeah, so I think now we get into the first very problematic incident and As we've been talking, I know there's a debate among, I don't know, people on the internet about whether or not Aaron Hernandez was a serial killer, because I've heard that said by multiple people, and I think the answer is clearly no, right, before we get into this stuff.
0: The guy's being too aggressive. His response is to punch the guy. So no, he's not a serial killer. He's just a kid who has serious, deeply rooted problems, and we're seeing that
1: come out now. But the thing he gets into, you don't even have to have CTE or be a drug addict or any of these other factors. You see dumb eighteen, nineteen year old kids doing this stuff all the time. You're in a nightclub, someone steps on your shoe. By the way, it's going to happen. Let it go. You're in a crowded place. What do you think's going to happen? Um, but they let it escalate. Yeah, that's exactly right. You said
0: dumb kids. You're 18, 19, 20 years old. You're a kid. And by today's standards, because we know more about this now, in brain development, a man or a, a, a young man's brain does not develop until he's 25 years of age. This is a, guy, a kid just out of high school. He's thrown in his program. He's already got C.D.E. He's abusing weed, self-medicating, and this is already happening. He's already getting paranoid. So put that with normal dumb stuff that teenagers do, and this is
1: what you get. So from my understanding... He notes who these guys are, they're in the club, and he kind of has them on his radar, waits for them to leave. See, he didn't forget about it. These guys probably thought, all right, whatever happened, happened. It's over. And he shoots into their car. Correct. When you, when you have
0: that type of mental state, Type of machismo thing going on inside you. You don't forget anything. A guy looks at you, even just because he's surveying the room and he happens to lock eyes with you, you immediately think this guy's mad dogging me. This guy's looking for trouble. That's where Aaron Hernandez was. So um, I, I, there, there was a couple incidents in college where this happens. Um, and we have to be clear that there was an incident where there was uh, a shooting. But it came later when he shoots in a car and he actually uh, – he's accused of killing two people. But the shooting that you're talking about is the shooting in college that he was never charged for. And the Florida Police Department basically swept it under the rug when uh, they started asking about this big guy, Hispanic guy. And, yeah, he just shoots. There's There's no – hesitation his part, he believes these guys are confronting him, and there's nothing to prove that, but in his mind, he
1: believes that, and yes, he just shoots. Yeah, it didn't occur to me either, although perhaps it's pretty obvious, in Connecticut, you know, there's not a culture of, there's not much of a culture of people waving guns around or jamming guns into the waistband of their pants. But, you know, now he's in this new environment. It's like a toy, right? And he obviously doesn't know how to use it.
0: Yeah, well, but he's the one looking for the guns. He's, he's asking people to, to find them where he can buy a gun. And he's carrying these guns to them because he's paranoid. Um, so, you know, he's going through college. So all these small incidents trying to spot that's be hitting people. There's, of course, pulling out guns on people and waving in people's faces. Um and that is something that the university is doing a good job of keeping under wraps. They've done a very good job of it. And he then decides, as a junior and underclassman, that he's going into the NFL. That he's good enough. And he has good reason to think this. This is a purely financial uh, decision on his part and whether he was being uh, schooled or advised by an agent. Um, I don't know. But so he wins the Mackey Award in college, which is preserved for the best tight end in the nation. He is considered the tight end with the best hands. He is considered the most formidable tight end at that time in college. And he decides to forego his last year and into the draft because his agents are telling him, you're a first-round draft choice. You have the most potential of all the picks. He's 6'2", 250 pounds. He's a big kid. So he goes into the draft. And, of course, he's thinking, I'm going to go in the first or second round, and it doesn't happen. And, by the way, Rob Kronkowski comes out the same year as Aaron Hernandez. And Aaron Hernandez is considered a better prospect than Rob Gronkowski. That's something that you should keep in the head, back of your mind. And Rob Gronkowski is 6'7", 270 pounds. And Aaron Hernandez is still considered a better prospect. But because of all of these infants, NFL teams do a lot of events. They hire professionals to look into your background. And that's where it starts coming up. He has found that he failed. Numerous uh, drug tests in college. We don't know what those drug tests were. Were they anabolic steroids? Were they just, you know, methamphetamines? I would go as far as saying I don't believe he was taking methamphetamines at least in in college, because his performance would have shown that it would have gone downhill. I think he's just self medicating with drinking, doing that kind of stuff. But NFL teams find out about all these incidents where he's waving guns, he's punching people, he's shooting people, and it becomes a huge issue on that scorecard for him. And he drops in the draft. He doesn't go to the till the fourth round and he's drafted by the
1: Yeah, and so Bill Belichick, yet again, this is a steal, you know, because he figures, yeah, he's got some pretty severe character issues, but I don't really care. I can make this work. And he does. Absolutely. You have a structure. Three
0: new pages, Tom Brady has Belichick, has Kraft. This is a structure that he would excel in. And remember, it's not like we're talking about a player, being Aaron Hernandez, that without partying all night. No, he's the first one at the, institute, at, the, at the the facility to work out. He's the last person to lead. His work effort is unquestionable. And the results are here they are. Rookie season he becomes the youngest player since 1960 to get 100 yards in a single in game. Okay? He is a beast. But his contract isn't reflected is maybe half of that of what a normal fourth round would be. And although he's doing all the things he's doing they know how good he is, it's because of those character issues. And they escalate. The New England Patriots are a great organization, one of the best. And they can't hide who this guy is. His first season, he's in the Super Bowl. to catch the touchdown pass. He and, and Rob Gronkowski immediately established themselves as the best tight end duo in NFL history. I mean, let me repeat that. The best tight end duo in NFL history. They're doing stuff that no one's ever done before. But Aaron Hernandez on the side is returning to Connecticut. He's buying large quantities of wheat. He's selling wheat. He's hiring this guy by the name of Bradley he's been his dealer and he's been selling drugs to him and now he had to buy large quantities of weed for him so they can sell it and make a profit because he's not making that much money compared to his teammates. And that's where the criminal element really enters the picture here. This guy, brassy, gnome thug, drug addict, been in prison for attempted murder. He's got all these cases pending. And who is he hanging around with?
1: An NFL star by the name of Aaron Hernandez. Yeah, but how much of this is him wanting to make money versus just engage in illegal things? I mean, to me, this seems like kind of part of his whole poser thing, saying he's part of the Bloods. He's throwing the N-word around. It's like, well, you're not black, sir. Uh, Yeah, no, that's a big problem. I think in California it is, but I don't know how they do
0: engage, so you can use the N-word and you're not black and stuff. Yeah, you know what? He is who he is, but if he is part of a, of, a, of a gang, or at least, see, the difference between, like, the mob and these gangs are that these gangs, you just hang around with them and you're considered one of them. With the mob, you got to go out and kill people. you got to do all these things and go through a prospect, period, which Aaron has not gone. He's got money. It's what these guys want. So they bring him into the fold, and what is he doing? He responds by being sensitive to everything anybody's doing. He's shooting people. He's doing stuff, and the paranoia is rising quickly. By 2000, uh, well, actually by uh, 2011, he gets in numerous altercations. And one of them being with this guy, Bradley, who actually is his dealer. And lo and behold, they get into a little nothing type of argument about the most simplest of things. And they're driving home. Again, Aaron Hernandez he doesn't forget anything. They're in the car together, and suddenly, this guy wakes up. According to him, this is Bradley speaking here, because he testified to this. Aaron Hernandez has a, a block pointed at his, at his face. And he just he immediately just pulls the trigger, he shoots this guy right in the face, and leaves him. In a parking lot to die. And that's when things start getting really muddled to paranoia, what reality really is, and what's happening in his life. So you can imagine, for him to get a person he considers a friend just to pull a gun and shoot the guy in the face for basically nothing shows you the type of where his level of thinking is already
1: at. Yeah. And we know he got shot in the face because, uh, You can tell by looking at his face that he got shot in the face. Besides this violent stuff, his behavior is becoming more and more strange. Like the guy who had his locker next to his in the Patriots locker room told this story later on that everyone was kind of afraid of him. That Hernandez would snap towels at people and kind of wave his junk around and describe in detail his homosexual encounters in like graphic detail and everyone was just weirded out by him they couldn't even find a guy to keep his locker next to his it just kept rotating so like clearly he's unraveling even further now
0: yeah but I would look just looking at this because of his behavior and what he does I would tend to say that that is not true and he was violent, that he was more comfortable running because he really pushed that macho stuff on people, he was kind of a bully, um, you know, he's the locker guy, that if you don't work out as hard as him, you're, you're a pussy, and all this stuff, I would say that's true. That he was telling people that he was gay, I don't believe that for one second, because everything he's doing is to cover that up. That he would verbally come on and say that makes no sense. So I don't believe that's stress. I think that's people just talking after he's dead, and they're saying this stuff because everything he's done tells a different story. You have sixty seconds remaining. But you're right. He's unraveling. Um, after he shoots this guy, no one knows about it because this guy Bradley did not tell anybody. At that point, he's at that code that like I'm not telling anybody. this guy shot me. I'm not telling anybody. But. Aaron Hernandez understands in his mind that this guy is dangerous. This guy's alive and succeeded killing him. So, he is extremely paranoid that this guy's going to come back and basically kill him. How do we know that? Okay, correct.
1: So, now he's got a reason to be paranoid. He shot someone who trusted him in the face and left him to die. And this guy's not a phony pretend gangster. This guy is a really legitimately dangerous guy who's probably killed people before, I would guess, or at least, you know, it it would be in character. Um, So this is a bad situation for him, which I guess we'll get into in part two of our episode on Aaron Hernandez. So until then, I've been Matt Ralston. I'm willing to care
0: your surroundings, your life can depend on it.